0: This is the Convergent Science Network podcast. Leading researchers in the domain of neuroscience, brain theory, and technology are interviewed by Paul Verschur and Tony Prescott.
1: This is Paul Verschur with the Convergent Science Network podcast with my colleague uh, Tony Prescott. And we're here today with Neil Burgess. Um, who is uh, a speaker in our tenth edition BCBT Summer School, and Neil was giving an overview of, of his work on, on spatial cognition, also about how to link neural dynamics with advanced psychological function, like our knowledge of space. And what Neil, what you also presented very much in your in your description of your work is this close coupling between theoretical approaches, modeling work, and experimental work, right? So um, where did this, this combination of these two methods, if you want, uh, originate?
2: Uh, well, I was originally a computational person. Um, having done theoretical physics, I started to want to um, do computational models of, of memory and other forms of cognition at the level of neurons. And. Um, the, well, my, my my PhD supervisor, theoretical physicist called Mike Moore, uh, said, you know, if you're going in this direction, it's an experimental subject, and you need to get involved in the experiments, and I'm always grateful for that advice. Uh, there would be no point sticking to, say, mathematically tractable models uh, if they had nothing to do with the biological reality, and so it seems very important to... Um, have your models directly address experiment, and equally for your experiments to be, you know, theoretically well grounded to answer particular hypotheses mm-hmm. that make sense. And so, um, you know, they experiment and theory should always work together. Mm-hmm. But now, how many
1: of the models you have generated in that period have you actually completely rejected and changed your mind about,
2: and taken a completely different direction? Um, that's a good question. I think that um, typically you're interested in a phenomenon and you continue to follow that even when experiments or models don't work. And so if you're interested in explaining that phenomenon, your, your models might change and indeed your experiments might. Uh, so in terms of all that rejection... Um, I'm, I'm struggling. So I, I started off uh, doing um, kind of uh, Hopfield model type models of memory and I was working with the psychologist uh, Graham Hitch who was interested in memory for, for serial order and it seemed that uh, although you can uh, remember sequences of things in Hopfield models by associating one pattern of activity to the next, in, in human uh, working memory for serial order often you make paired transpositions of, of items so instead of A, B, C, D you remember or you output A C B D, and it's very hard to get that kind of error in a straightforward Hopfield model. And so I started using uh, competitive queuing type models. And I haven't really looked back on the on the Hopfield type models, although I still believe that the attractor network idea is is key to uh, how much of the brain works, including hippocampal area CA three. Uh, I haven't really gone back to those models as just a pure attractor model of memory. Mm-hmm.
1: Right. So then you started out by saying, by, by pointing to this Wang and Simmons experiment that, that makes the point that actually there are a number of, of cues or a number of streams of information that come together in our understanding of space. So why do you think that, that experiment is, is sort of critical
2: to, as, as a starting point of the analysis? Um, well, it, it's just one experiment. I don't think it's <clears throat> critical, but it, it very nicely um, presents the um, fact that you can remember where something is in many different ways. And so it's sometimes good to start with that example so that even though I then might drone on about hippocampal place cells for a long time, uh, the audience already knows that that's only one kind of strategy for remembering where something is and that other parts of the brain would be doing um, equally useful uh, things that can help you remember stuff in different ways.
1: Mm-hmm. So oft these different... Uh, possible ways to deal with space a, 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 as a concept. How would you then define the way the hippocampus
2: solves the problem of space? Um, well, I mean, all of that part of the model is very much driven by the place cell phenomenon and single, co- surprisingly, single neurons encoding for single places. I mean, it's a remarkable sort of one to one mapping. Aside from the fact that different cells will fire in different environments, and provides a very uh, easy to use code. You could associate things that happen in places with uh, the activity of the place cell that fires in that place very easily, or you could, having uh, found a place cell that fires in a given place, it could be that its firing rate is modulated by some other factor that happens in that place. And that's just a very simple starting point for thinking about um, a memory system for location. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah I think going back to this question about parallel representations uh, uh, a lot of the hippocampal models and I think yours start from this assumption that the, the hippocampus represents one solution to the question of where something is and but an alternative bayesian view might be you would represent a uh, probability distribution across multiple solutions I mean is that something that you entertain as a possibility?
2: Uh yes uh, so okay. What's been lacking is um, direct experimental evidence that you might be weighing up the different alternatives and seeing, you know, place cells firing for both different alternatives. But in many situations, you can see, for example, as I showed, the single firing field of a place cell becoming bimodal when you stretch the environment, for mm. example. And it's possible that you could think of that as part of a system that's trying to estimate location. And because it's being predominantly taking evidence from distances to boundaries, it's now got a hypothesis that is, uh, you know, has two peaks in it and, and that you are indeed representing a distribution. And in the experiment that I showed where people had to remember where something was, uh, you know, the, the population vector overlap with the stored place cell uh, representation captures well the distribution of um, responses across subjects uh, in that experiment. Uh, rather than indicating a single location. Mm. um, Yeah, but I think
1: Tony's question is also annoying, right? Because in some (laughs) sense, Tony is saying, like, well, sort of this spatial cognition can happen in many different ways, in many different areas of the brain. It becomes a little bit, like, wishy-washy, like, okay, it's sort of not such a unique feature then of, of a single structure like the hippocampus. That, that's how I how I take that question. If it's just basic, because okay, we integrate multiple factors, and so then why worry about the hippocampus? So, but but I still believe that hippocampus is is making a unique contribution to solving that problem.
0: Well, I I, th- I would agree with that. But the question okay. is that I mean, so I think it's definitely true that we have at least two solutions. No, but I'm here to make uh, yes, I realize Neil's that but life difficult. But just to clarify my position. So ah, okay. there's Sorry. there's a striatal uh, solution to the mm-hmm. navigation problem. There's something in the hippocampus there may well be other ways of navigating mm-hmm, certainly, exactly. certainly towards sort of nearby targets sort of and so on. And, uh, you know, it, so there's, it, you can almost say, well, uh, in the hippocampus, we might be representing multiple solutions and then and the decision gets made in some other part of the brain about which way we would go. And there are, there are models of hippocampus that, <laughs> that are consistent with the idea of representing multiple hypotheses. So... No, but I
1: want Neil to tell me now which one
0: it is. Yes.
2: <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I mean, as, as I showed, um, there are some things that we do know about the brain. And this Packard and Magor experiment was, an, again, it was only a summary of lots of things that people knew up to that point, but it was a very nice, clear uh, expression of the fact that different solutions could... Um, seem to be supported by different parts of the brain. And you could uh, actually inject anesthetic into the two different parts of the brain and see the different strategies being expressed Mm -hmm. in behavior. So um, in answer to Tony's question, I think, well, and indeed yours, that um, if I want to characterize the hippocampal contribution to these kind of spatial memory tasks, you know, it, it seems to be representing a location relative to the environment probably is a conjunction of many kinds of cues, some of which are distances to boundaries in different directions. Whereas other parts of the brain might be remembering more, uh, you know, I turned left at the shoe shop or a sequence of turns on a well-known route. Or in other parts of the brain, uh, still, you know, a visual, visual snapshot matching. Uh, this, is, this looks like where I was before. And all of these uh, things are happening in parallel. And uh, it is an interesting question. What, how they get combined, who chooses what, and indeed on the input, there's different kinds of evidence coming in, and they are probably weighted in, in a Bayesian way, with uh, more things that seem to be more stable over time or more certain being given a, a stronger weight than things that seem mm-hmm. more variable.
1: But would it be fair then to say that the hippocampus really is critical in generating this allocentric ello- representation of space?
2: Uh, yes, I would think so. Yeah, mm-hmm. but. but uh, In many of these experiments, uh, they're a memory experiment. You have to remember a location and go there. And we we know that the hippocampus is critical for many forms of memory. So in a spatial memory experiment, yes, if you inactivate it, then often the person or animal will not perform very well. Mm -hmm. So there's good evidence that the hippocampus is responsible. And in that Packard-Omogor experiment, Mm -hmm. you could see that it was particularly responsible for one of the two available strategies in that task. Mm -hmm. But no,
0: but the general hypothesis that you're following then is that the, uh, there's a population response in hippocampus of, of place cells, which uh, in some way represent the brain's best guess as to where it is in the world in an allocentric coordinate frame.
2: In those
1: tasks, yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. We then. <clears throat> so now we we have, we have a hypothesis about what the hippocampus is doing, and it gives you this an allocentric representation space, so in world coordinates. Which is which is a fantastic accomplishment and now we have to try to understand how this is done right and and then you build very much your your theory your model on that around at least in the, in your presentation now around this notion of the boundary vector cells this is really f- the starting point of your whole analysis right so so why why do you feel that this notion of boundary vector cells is then so decisive to understand this ability to generate allocentric representation of space
2: um, well, First of all, the head direction cells, I think, are fundamental because this overall orientation, sense of orientation, is is important for everything that comes uh, subsequent to that. But uh, taking that um, as granted, then you need some distances from some things to know where you are. And um, really, I think that if you were to imagine an animal with a sort of range finder, looking at the distances to stuff around it in full 360 degrees. you know, Obviously, the biggest contribution will be to either things that are very nearby or things that are quite extended. And so topographical features of the environment that are extended are going to dominate that kind of representation. And I, I think that that's really the boundary vector cells. We heard also, uh, and, and I talked about object vector cells, and we heard from them uh, from Edvard Moser mm-hmm. You know, the, the boundary vector cells would, do actually respond to uh, small objects, just they have a very small firing field is provoked by a very small object. And so they're sort of responding like a, a, a range finder tuned in a particular direction, allocentric direction, presumably governed by the head direction cells. And, and you know, with once you're oriented, the next thing you need is distance. And, and these are range finders tuned to directions and... They seem to provide the simplest explanation for the sort of broad qualities of the firing fields of place cells when you put uh, an animal in different environments, environments that differ in shape and size, but not differ in in texture Mm -hmm. and odor and and so on enough to make different place cells fire, in which case you wouldn't be able to try and analyze Mm -hmm. these different kinds of inputs.
1: So then you're saying, look, I have a heading (coughs) vector. This gives me if you want, my that's my compass, that's my, 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 my directional system, and now I glue to that some sensory feature, it might be somatosensory, it might be auditory, it might be visual, and that now gives me, let's say, a, a reference in space of, of how that compass coordinate maps onto that specific
2: environment. Well, I should say that in, in most normal environments, there would be, a, you know, a a broad range of different local cues also which would help you in a very direct way to localize yourself and they are probably also important to play cells Um, but in most experiments most people do they try to control for those cues so that they're only the cues that that they're aware of remaining like Mm -hmm. the boundary of the environment these distant orientation cues for the head direction cells and so um, given that you've tried to remove reliable local cues. also usually the floor is rot- rotated between trials, then what do you have left, do you have distances to, to extended things.
1: Right. But now the uh, head direction system depends on path integration. Path integration is noisy because it's an integrator. Um, so isn't that a little bit of an obstacle for, for the, such a system to keep on working reliably over extended periods of time? Yes,
2: indeed. So it, that's an interesting thing that I didn't talk about, but the same... Um, exactly the same concerns about how you translate between egocentric and allocentric in terms of place cells and uh, sensory inputs, which have to be egocentric, applies to head direction cells. So a head direction cell will fire whenever the the uh, animal's facing, let's say, north, I don't actually mean compass north, uh, Whichever, wherever it is in the environment. And so actually, in all uh, experimental situations when they've been recorded, that. That tuning is parallel across the environment, but if they were simply responding to sensory cues, you would see parallax, which you mm-hmm. do not see. It is an allocentric response, the head direction cells. And so, again, you need to have this translation mechanism between egocentric sensory input and this allocentric response. And so mm-hmm. we think probably retrosplenial cortex, as in the model that I explained, has to do that same job for the head direction cells so that they can be reliably anchored to sensory input to prevent the accumulation of error mm-hmm. that you would inevitably get if you're just integrating uh, angular uh, uh, acceleration, right? But then is the the sensory cue
1: that you link the, the heading vector to um, that in itself might already be an invariant representation of some sensory state. It might not be necessarily egocentric, right? If we go through some some perceptual hierarchy, and if I climb up that hierarchy, I might get to more invariant representations of space. Maybe I have a very abstract representation. Of say just okay, this is a wall. I'm, I'm not interested anymore in its orientation or its color or its size, a wall. So, so how would that notion of invariant representations of the sensory feature then actually be a challenge to that, to that model?
2: Well, I think it's um, the invariance we're talking about uh, is exactly, you know, the head direction cells show that very nicely. They're at the top of the hierarchy for direction, they're invariant to all of the parallax and sensory stuff that happens as you move around. And they extract uh, what would be a compass, you mm-hmm. know, and and, and uh, the
1: rest of the system is probably mm-hmm. built on that. And now, if it would replace the heading vector with a movement vector, would that change your your approach very much? Uh Because Um, as opposed opposed to integrating, let's say, my rotations in space, I could also say I just interpolate between subsequent movements, and this gives me a vector that I might then use to get to some sort of
2: allocentric representation of space. Uh, Well, so there's two separate things here. One is uh, how do the head direction cells fire to encode the orientation of the head. If you then move on to path integration and perhaps what drives grid cells to mm. fire, then you have to integrate movement rather mm-hmm. than head direction. So um, you need to know which direction you've moved in, not which direction your head is facing.
1: Exactly. So w- would that make a big difference to your proposal? Um,
2: not for the boundary vector cells, I don't think. Um, well, because usually the head of the rat is... Be, be, because the the so the boundary vector cell model of place cell firing is not path integration. It's just mm-hmm. feed-forward sensory input. Mm-hmm. What direction from the head is the boundary feed-forward? So there's, there's not an issue there. When you come on to how you do path integration, how you integrate your own bodily movement to estimate where you are, which may well happen through grid cells, then, indeed, you need to know your movement direction, your movement mm-hmm. vector, not your heading That's vector. Right. Perfect, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so there's various uh, hypotheses as to where this signal comes from mm-hmm. because it can't be just the, heading, the head direction That's cells right. uh, multiplied by mm-hmm. running speed. It has to be movement direction. Would that be your grid cells then? Uh, n- no, the, w- what we're talking about are w- what are the inputs that would go to something like grid cells. Mm-hmm. That, that is the movement signal that is integrated.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, but wait. If, if I would just look at subsequent grid cell responses, I could infer... A yes. movement vector you right? could do, you could do. So that's what I was after. Yeah,
2: so I, I think maybe this ke- question came up with uh, Edvard Moser's talk, that whether uh, you could look at it either way. If you think grid cells know uh, how to fire because they're doing path integration, you need an input which is a movement vector. Mm-hmm. Or you could say, well, grid cells fire as they do, in which case uh, uh, a movement vector could be an output. Yes. That's it, yes, yes. It, exactly. Indeed, it could be. But then mm-hmm. you're still left with a question of, how the grid cells fired in that way mm-hmm. uh, in the first place, right?
0: The, um, so the, the activation of the place cells you have being driven by the boundary vector, the boundary vector cells, and uh, you, you, so it's, it's basically a thresholded sum of the inputs from the boundary cells. Um, um, clearly, you could choose the the weighted sum of the inputs as just the kind of the the, the first thing to try. Is are there other motivations for doing it that way? For example, from sort of environment warping experiments that say that it's the weighted average, it's the best thing to use.
2: Um, well, it was the simplest thing to right. first thing to try. But in some experiments, as you um, expand the box, you have a place field which slowly reduces in firing rate and disappears. Right. Which implies a, th- a sum with a threshold. You know, as the over initially overlapping inputs from opposing walls uh, move apart, then the the bit you've got left slowly falls below threshold and the cell stops firing. So there's there's good reason to use a a thresholded sum. There's a reason for a threshold. And um, we really did see, um, in some cases, individual sub-peaks being moved apart, which means you have to sum the two rather than multiply. If you multiply them, then you get for example, a Bayesian you know, average position in between the two peaks as they were. Well, this is them. what I was getting at. So, is so, there support so there, for
0: multiple hypotheses in some of those experiments? Uh,
2: well, um, just to finish answering your question, there's, there's it, clearly adding these inputs from the different walls and having a threshold was the most obvious thing to do, oh. given all the things we've said. Um, so if you were trying to combine um, hypotheses probabilistically, you would probably uh, multiply. Um, that's not what we saw. Right. Um, it's interesting because of these experiments by um, Gallastel and Cheng, and also by uh, uh, Cartwright and Collett. Um, mm. John O'Keefe in this original stretchy box experiment was uh, expecting to see uh, cells place cells firing um, in the uh, in the constant ratio of the distances across the box, rather yeah. than the sub-peaks being pulled apart and sticking to the, f- the fixed absolute distance uh, from the walls as they were pulled apart. And so if what he'd been expecting had happened, that would have been argument for multiplying and having kind of the, the combined estimate of two probability dist- mm. distributions, but that isn't what we saw.
0: But it sounds like what, what you the experiments say is a bit more sophisticated than than, yes. than the, some, the than the averaging. But uh, So there might be something to look at there in the future in terms of... How, in this inconsistent environment, that's you know, where uh, the boundary vector cells don't all point to the same place in space, then you might start to represent multiple hypotheses in terms of place cell activity.
2: Well, I don't, I, I don't know if there is evidence for that. I think there is definitely evidence for um, hypotheses about what happens in a place. You know, place cell. A play cell might fire in the same place uh, trial after trial, uh, but its firing rate might vary quite strongly according to right. other hypotheses to do with um, sensory stimuli that are present, whether objects are nearby, smells, uh, how fast you're running. So I think there's a lot of um, orthogonal hypotheses to uh, place which also modulate uh, the firing rate, but uh, it, it more like a gain field representation. Okay. Uh, so the actual firing field itself uh, isn't obviously doing something nice and Bayesian about estimating location uh, when you do these weird experiments yeah. when you deform the environment, which are rather unnatural. But they probably are combining the cues to them, such as uh, we haven't talked about the path integration input mm. and the sensory input uh, are probably being combined in a more Bayesian way.
0: Yeah, and also as you say, maybe there's something happening in time You know that uh, you can swap between hypotheses over time and explore different Well, actually, on, on that point,
2: um, if you do this stretching experiment and you, if you get a, place, a single place field stretching into two place fields as you've expanded the box, then you notice that each place field fires a bit more uh, according to running direction. So the, the place field that appears to be attached to the wall behind the animal fires a bit more so that when you're running in one direction, one peak will be higher, and when you're running in right. the other direction, the other peak will be higher, which we interpreted as being this path integration input adding to this environmental sensory input and being stronger if you've just run from a wall. Obviously, you have a good estimate of how f- far away it is from path integration, so that peak gets a bit higher because it's got a stronger path integration input than the peak that's attached to the opposite wall that you're running towards.
1: Yeah. yeah. But but i'm i find it very interesting you guys seem so let's say motivated to interpret this in bayesian terms well if you look at the dynamics of ca3 ca1 where the real action in the end happens it's also highly competitive and in the end it's relatively sparse you could also think about it much much more as let's say the endpoint selector that sits on top of some Bayesian integrator as opposed to being a Bayesian integrator itself, because you just don't have the dynamics for it, because it's it's rather it's rather sort of selective, rather sparse, and these are not the features you want in your Bayesian integrator. So so is it not yeah, fair to yeah, place no, that I bit outside of the hippocampus,
2: gentlemen? No, I, I think that's fine. I, I, as I said uh, uh, initially to Tony, there isn't good evidence of multiple hypotheses mm-hmm. being entertained at the same time. It, it, it would be a good way for the system to work but um, it, mm-hmm. it may well right. not do that.
1: But then, can't we not explain the elongation of the the, the place field also in terms of, of a perceptual learning process? Because it, I mean, the animal starts also carve out specific trajectories through that space. It's just not moving randomly, right? And the cells you measure from is probably also on trajectories the animal will visit more frequently than other trajectories. So it will actually be moving more often from that specific initial position to a final position and therefore expose itself more to the specific sensory features that are already associated with that place field and therefore strengthen the specific intra-place field associations and then if you want, elongating its response.
2: Well there are interesting tra- trajectory effects mm. on place cell firing but they're rather different than these effects in this unusual situation where we change the, the shape and size of the environment. Mm-hmm. I mean I think that's an unusual experimental manipulation that shows us something about the inputs. However I- the trajectory effects are interesting so that uh, after, so if the, the animals are always running in the same direction you see that firing fields tend to uh, elongate backwards a little bit along the track. Mm-hmm. So my anchor noticed this. Um, but um it that's been interpreted um as perhaps the place cell beginning to fire in expectation of getting to its quote true place or original place and there's some interesting theoretical work by uh, Matt Bofanik and some co-authors suggesting that um these place cells might um encode a successor representation for reinforcement learning, which is an idea from Peter Diane in the nineties that if you were to tweak your state representation to actually include the uh, likelihood of eventually ending up at that state, even when you're at other states, then that enables you to estimate um, future uh, reward at a given location Mm -hmm. uh, much more efficiently. And so it's possible that if you have repeated trajectories, then you can build a little bit of the, um, the probability that you now know that if you're here, you're likely to end up somewhere else mm-hmm. into the state representation so that you can then um, rather m- more easily estimate likely future reward from a given mm-hmm. location because you've built in the transition probabilities which are now not uniform because I always run in this direction when I'm in this place. So
1: it's the kind of model that reduces the whole brain into the hippocampus. Well, yeah. no,
2: I mean, it may be that uh, that kind of representation, you know, perceptual learning and so on affects, uh, you know, it could explain what happens in lots of parts of the brain, not, mm-hmm. not just the hippocampus.
1: Right, okay. But now, so in, in your physio- so then with that model, you went to look at the physiology, and then you show that these sort of uh, vector border cells um, are are to be found both in entorhinal cortex or the subiculum and the entorhinal cortex, which is interesting, right? Because if you look at the overall loop, we start in entorhinal, we go to the dentate gyrus, CA3, CA2, CA1, then subiculum, and then we go out to entorhinal cortex. So isn't it really strange that we find these cells actually at the input stage and the output stage of that whole loop? It's like we're wasting all this circuitry in between to do nothing, (laughs) and we just have our border
2: vector cells. It is. It is strange. I mean, it is a loop, and we may be interpreting how it works incorrectly when we think of entorhinal as the input and subiculum as the output. I mean, there's plenty of connections from subiculum back to entorhinal, and pre-subiculum has very strong connections to entorhinal. my colleague Colin Lever is always keen to point out that um, something that Pat Sharp originally noticed, that when you get a complete remapping of place cells in CA1 between two environments, there's actually uh, you know spatial, spatial responses in subiculum that are nice and stable that you can record, and they show no remapping at all. And yet the standard model would be that the major input to subiculum is the output of CA1, and yet you've got this complete uh, change in CA1 representation, no change in subiculum. So, yes, it is a puzzle, mm-hmm. you know, maybe subiculum is the input mm-hmm. and it goes around to enter right. and then into, you mm-hmm. know, who knows. But it, it is a puzzle. It's puzzling from the anatomy. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't expect it. No, but, but it's it, quite a challenge There's, to some, your there's, there's something there that... Uh, but it is a
1: matter. challenge to your model, right? Because you want to say these border vector cells are, if you want, a representational primitive on which I built yes. everything else. Yes. But now we see whatever, wherever you want to put the input and the output, yes. They still sit there. Well, <laughs> and, 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 and what is
2: also true, if you, you know, you could also ask me the, the sort of functional difficult question would be the place cells are a, um, a basis set. Mm-hmm. You know, it could be that boundary vector cell firing responses are, are, are made out of uh, summed, weighted sums of place mm-hmm. cell firing. That, that, right. that, that, that could be possible. Uh, mm-hmm. But now, in, if
1: you look at, at subiculum and entorhinal, how big a proportion of cells in those areas
2: would actually show these properties? So um, I think it's around 20% or so is, is Colin Neva's best estimate in subiculum. Mm-hmm. And it's a bit less, maybe more like 10%, but still quite common. These border cells that Edvard Moser described, i.e. the boundary vector cells that fire quite close to the, the boundary, mm-hmm. they're, they're quite common. There have been a few reported that fire at a distance, but it's a handful. Mm-hmm. And so that's another another strange yeah, we, that remains to be mm-hmm. um, the exact relationship between the border cells and the boundary vector cells and the object vector cells mm-hmm. is, is still not quite clear.
1: Okay, so but then could, could we argue that in entorhinal cortex, there's, if you want, a rank order of, of cells and in terms of how funda- foundational they are. You could argue, well, grid cells might be very foundational. Um, single modality cells in lateral entorhinal cortex might be foundational. And now I start to merge them. I start to merge them in your border vector cells. So because now I have, within entorhinal cortex, I have access to both movement vectors, grid cells, and have access to sensory features of the world, lateral entorhinal cortex, and I just have a subpopulation of cells that is associating the two, and now I have my border vector
2: cells. Um, yes, yes, the grid cells are also uh, a basis set, and you could form any um, responses out of them. Uh, so. It's a good question, although it's not quite clear what foundational means in your question. And so we have looked developmentally. So Francesca Cucucci in John O'Keefe's lab um, was looking at this and also Edvard Moser's lab uh, at the same time. And what you see during development as pups learn to start to crawl around and open their eyes and so on is that the head direction cells are foundational in the sense that they seem to be there as soon as you can record them. There's also theta rhythmicity, as early as you can record them in, in this situation. Then you also see place cell responses as they start to crawl around, the uh, rat pups. Um, and they get better with experience over the several weeks. So there's a slow uh, improvement in the spatial tuning of the place cells. Grid cells are not present until um, four or five days developmental days after you see these other cells. And so... They're not foundational in that sense, it seems, uh, and, and this has led to people suggesting that maybe the grid cells require some stable spatial input maybe from place cells to wire themselves up to fire mm-hmm. properly. I mean, uh, the head direction cell seems to be a, a very strong attractor network so that the, the head direction cell responses are mutually coherent with each other even if they are drifting a little bit early on in development. And it may be the same with the grid cells that they're mutually connected well so that it's an attractive, but it's just drifting so much relative to the world that you can't ever record it. Uh, that's a possibility. And then you only see it when it gets attached to stable sensory inputs, because then you can average over movements across the environment. But yeah, they're all interesting questions and you can try the good thing about this field is that you can try to answer them with experiments. Absolutely.
0: I and mean, the developmental trajectory you're talking about there is based on the chemical properties of the cells, not not their functional properties. No,
2: no, no. Sorry, the function. This is recording um, uh, the, the, the spiking activity as pups first start to move around um, as they start to explore around the nest. Francesca will give a talk about uh, this okay. tomorrow, mm-hmm. I think. Right.
1: But now it, the, the object vector cells, so this is the next complexification that also uh, Edward talked about yesterday. Um, you see them as a further variation on that same theme, or should we now be really shocked and say, oh, this is, again, completely different? And
2: uh, well, they're obviously closely related to boundary vector cells in the sense mm-hmm. of firing at an allocentric displacement vector from something, and the, the only thing that's different is that they seem to be uh, specifically tuned to small objects. Right. So a boundary vector cell, as mm-hmm. I said, will fire to an extended object, but will also fire to a, a smaller object but just with a very small firing field, because mm-hmm. uh, obviously it only has to move a little way, and then it's not in in the receptive field for that cell. Right. Whereas an extended boundary will mm-hmm. produce a long strip of fire. The object vector cells seem to be different in that they uh, don't seem to respond to the extended boundaries of the environment. They just it, respond to uh, objects put within it. Now, it could be that over time, uh, does something to do with the object being novel and the boundaries being familiar it means that it discriminates? Because the same bound object vector cell will respond similarly to different objects. It's not specific, it seems, to a specific objects, but will refer to any small object, mm-hmm. but not to an extended boundary. But so far, the experiments I don't think have really been done to see whether if you put a novel extended object in that looks a bit like a boundary, whether right. those cells will fire or not. Exactly, that that's hasn't the question. Been done. Right? When does not a boundary? The reverse experiment has sort of been done in that uh, uh, Bruno Pousset's group had uh, showed that um, some wine bottles put inside a uh, one of these boxes when you're recording place cells typically don't cause much place cell firing, although we know now <coughs> from Jim Neerum's work that a small number of place cells mm-hmm. will fire relative to these. It, looking mm-hmm. like object vector cells. But when they placed three wine bottles in a row together, they started to have more influence, probably because of an extended thing they would be driving more boundary vector cells. But the same kind of experiment hasn't been done with these mm-hmm. object vector cells okay. yet.
1: But the, 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 the interesting thing about now the these these object vector cells is that they appear in CA1, apparently.
2: No? Well, a very small proportion of CA1 cells, yes. But um, Edvard was reporting a medial entorhinal mm-hmm. and um, some interesting sort of memory object vector, well, memory times object cells had been reported in lateral entorhinal. T- mm-hmm. But can't we, but look, this is these are highly plastic circuits
1: and they are exposed to multiple, let's say, streams of modalities and, and, and sub-modalities. So if we just combine these two considerations, is it then not sort of predictable that these kinds of combinatorial or conjunctive encodings emerge rather naturally well
2: um y- yes but um before we rec- before we proposed them from our m- m- analysis of place cell firing um nobody knew that a an offset vector and our offset vector was one of the ingredients that would get combined with boundary detectors or whatever and until the moses recorded grid cells nobody thought that this sort of Fourier-like representation of, of space would, would exist or needed mm-hmm. to exist. And so, yes, in retrospect, but before the fact... Mm-hmm. Uh, no, wait,
1: no. no, no, I didn't want to trivialize it. I just want to say this might mean that if you now go for some ambiguous border object object, in, for sure you'll find a cell will respond to it because it, we look at this combinatorics.
2: Maybe, but I mean the interesting thing, I think, as Edvard pointed out about the hippocampus and entorhinal cortex is that... Coming from the point of view of uh, a Hopfield model for memory, you might expect a, a random distributed binary code that was uninterpretable. And in fact, you see these incredibly clear, uh, discrete responses, say to compass direction, or to location, or you know a Fourier-like grid uh, or, you know, a, a, a boundary vector. Now, there are, as, as Edward said, you know, you do get conjunctive directional grid cells, for example, and there may be other conjunctions, but the overall impression is that... And there are plenty of spatially modulated cells that haven't been characterized also in, in entorhinal cortex. Um, they're probably now uh, less than, you know, they're probably a minority of all the cells because most of the other... Yeah. because so many cells have been characterized but still the overriding impression is of these incredibly um discrete types of encoding being present and sure they are present in some combinations also but uh, overall you wouldn't say this is just a mush of everything you would say jesus christ why why are those such specific responses there
0: but as as a math- mathematician it must appeal to you to perhaps to find some theory that explains the emergence of these different kinds of cell types which are particularly useful For navigation and then you know to be able to perhaps generalize that and say what further kinds of cell types we might be able to predict that we should see perhaps because they're adding you know uh, more orthogonal information to the mix you know perhaps sensory cells for example Um, and I think that one of the things you alluded to and also Edward in his talk was how the grid cells have this sort of change in scale which follows a sort of mathematical law which is consistent with efficient course coding. So it looks as though you know, there is, you know, again, something which doesn't look at all accidental but must be the result of this system uh, responding in some very effective way to, to choose the right inputs for mapping space.
2: Yes, I, I think when you come to the grid cells and the um, discrete jumps in scale, You know, that is clearly well uh, arranged for large-scale navigation. You know, you get a big combinatorial uh, power for the range over which you can encode locations with that kind of representation.
0: So what is your prediction for the next kind of cell type? (laughs) Um,
2: It's funny, I, 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 I don't think the field at the moment is is working that way. It's true that we predicted boundary vector cells from looking at how place cells responded. And going back, uh, that argument, that way of thinking was certainly used by O'Keefe and Nadell. And uh, John O'Keefe, having found place cells, predicted there should be directional cells and something like path integration or distance cells. And so early on, you know, having found place cells, he he did predict the, the head direction cells and then something to do with distance. Mm-hmm. And they have been borne out. And And something to do with vectors, it seems like, is necessary, and And we have boundary vector cells and object vector cells now. I think the interesting thing, I mean, so there's already a lot of ingredients there for making a quite a sophisticated system for space. And at the moment, I think people are yeah. thinking more, how could this, um, all this stuff we've learned about space tell us about more general uh, memory properties of the hippocampal system, that, you know, how does it store uh, other information, which, which we know that the human hippocampus is required for all sorts of forms of memory. And I think that's interesting. So I haven't predicted any more kinds of spatial <coughs> well, cells, I must say. But.
0: That, that's particularly what I was getting at, you know, sort of human episodic memory, which is more than about a lot of things, more than space, mm. um, and where its it's less easy sort of coming at it from the geometry or whatever, to say what kind of basis functions you would want to have. So we might look at some mathematical way of of finding appropriate basis functions for learning about episodes in time.
2: Yes. Well, so I think um, it's very interesting that the um, cells in the human hippocampus, uh, most famously Jennifer Aniston-type cells, are... You know, they're a local tuning curve to a a concept, you know, in this case of Jennifer Aniston among all famous people or people you might have heard of. And you know, a cell will fire to that concept, whether it's it's a written name or or however you bring it to mind. And other cells will fire for other concepts, be they spiders or a semantic, you know, well-known landmarks or or famous actors. Yeah. And so you might uh, indeed see the sort of locally tuned place cell response as very similar to these locally tuned responses in semantic space. And this very interesting um, stretchy bird experiment by Tim Behrens and his group showing what looked like grid-like responses in in humans to semantics two-dimensional spaces, and uh, in in rats to one-dimensional continuously varying uh, tones showing place cell-like responses from um, David Tank's group you know, do imply that these principles that have been easiest to spot in space and freely navigating um, animals might well apply to all sorts of other kinds of information and how it's organized and how it's uh, retrieved and so on. Mm -hmm. And then that would obviously be a... Starting with these very well-characterized spatial responses, uh, I think is a good place to try and understand uh, everything else, which is obviously much harder to get a grip on. So,
0: that, I mean, that, that would suggest that one thing i might look for is sort of compression-type type algorithms which will give us a low-dimensional or relatively low-dimensional description of the current context uh, which we can encode then in entorhinal cortex and use to, to run our uh, sort of location finder or memory finder algorithm. Yeah, c- I mean, is that, the, is that the, a good, the, good metaphor? Well, the, the grid cells
2: um, certainly appear to be a compressed code like a, a Fourier code or something right. that would be very efficient compared to the place cells, which in their own way are very useful for tagging specific information to specific places, but um, are less efficient for covering large um, large areas in a metric way where you can infer the vector between any, any two parts. You know, if I have a place cell that fires in one place and another one that fires in another place with no overlap, it's hard to know uh, how they're related to each other, whereas with grid cells you can infer the uh, vector between two uh, grid cell codes for two different locations, and so that's very powerful. It's a compressed representation. You know, It looks a bit like a Fourier pattern, but equally, um, Dory Durdickman's group has pointed out that if you do PCA on the place cell input uh, that you get as, you, as your animal is running around, then you get things that look like uh, grid cells. Mm. So, indeed, the grid cells might be doing a PCA of this place representation, uh, and... Uh, there's a similar argument to be made for the um, successor representation that I mentioned for place cells in that uh, the eigenvectors of the successor representation also look like grid cells, and so th- they're clearly related, the eigenvectors of the covariance matrix being the same as the PCA. It could well be that the grid cells are a, a compressed way of arbitrarily representing any of this location coded or you know single peaked tuning curve, uh, grandmother type cell response uh, representation of arbitrary information, which is very useful for then associating things to that inf- information in the hippocampus.
0: Yeah, so I think if you, I maybe put words into your mouth, but you're agreeing that the interwinals are a compressed representation of the context, and then that uh, that's expanded out in the in CA1 CA3. Perhaps after being sparsified in dentate gyrus is often a step people have? Well,
2: you know, Mars, um, David Mars' model of the hippocampus remains the, mm. the, the, the best model of uh, hippocampus in, in, in memory. Uh, you know, it's probably surviving that and his cerebellum model and mm. surviving really well, maybe even better than his later work in vision. Um, and yes, those ideas hold a lot of currency, although it's important to remember that entorhinal cortex is not just grid cells so mm. even within medial entorhinal cortex it may be that head direction cells are more numerous than grid cells and there are also these border cells and conjunctive cells and spatially modulated but not grid cell cells mm. <laughs> so you know yes for the for the grid cells they look like compressed code uh, there's other things going on also uh, sensory inputs to place cells we think not just the path integration type input. but but
1: aren't you first you guys are all swept away by bayesian and now you're all swept away by, let's say, compression, which in some sense is already happening to a large amount outside of the hippocampus. And earlier, I thought we had agreed that hippocampus is contributing to, to constructing allocentric representations. So uh, let's not worry about compression then. But now you guys are all worried about compression. So what is it, compression, allocentric, or is it both?
2: What do you want? Uh, well, y- you're comparing apples and oranges. I, I, I don't... <laughs> I think you can have an allocentric or an egocentric representation, and you might want it to be compressed or not. So we, I don't think we can compare allocentric, egocentric. And no, no. You have to. No no. no, no. What I'm but, saying, uh,
1: compression or allocentric? Is it both? Is it combined? Is one building on the other? Are these independent, orthogonal interpretations? Well,
2: well. So, so the, the those codes, are the head direction cells and the place cells and grid cells, appear to be allocentric in the sense that. Um, it, the reference to the to the world, it's which way you're facing in the world, where you are in the world, but they are, you know, they are where the animal currently is, which is which you might uh, you might say is egocentric. It's referring mm-hmm. to the animal's own location or orientation. Now, having said that, I think then uh, the grid cells look like a compressed version of the place cells, so it may be that an expanded representation is useful for attaching mm-hmm. things to, and that might be the place cells, and. A compressed representation might be useful for generating um, large scale s- metrics within which to compare or know the relative positions of, of lots of information.
1: Mm-hmm. Now, about 10 years ago, we showed that grid cells actually carry more information about space than place cells. So, if you do position reconstruction from grid cells versus place cells, you have more accuracy from the grid cells. So, that would be then inconsistent with the idea that they compress the place cells because then the place cells would have more information. For position reconstruction. Uh, are
2: you comparing the same number of place cells and yeah. grid cells? Yeah, that this was yeah. all control. Yeah, no, so, well, exactly. So yeah. if you have a sparse representation, mm-hmm. which is easy mm-hmm. to attach things mm-hmm. to, then obviously it's more efficient. It is compressed. You can mm-hmm. have um, a coverage of, of uh, a larger environment with the same number mm-hmm. of grid cells. It's a, that's why it's a compressed representation.
1: O- okay, look. I'd, but now the um, the other... so. This is a, a controversy we'll solve, which we will solve later. But now you presented a model where y- you wanted to explain how now you could use allocentric representations to also reconstruct, if you want, imagined locations, right? How you could use imagery to sort of make now predictions that would be relevant for, for navigations. How, what's the contribution of that model now to our understanding of the hippocampus?
2: Well, uh, that model was trying to take these sort of spatial uh, things that we recorded in and around the campus and say how could they apply to human episodic memory. And, you know, the experience of human episodic memory is uh, reliving the the event, and um, in terms of the visual content, it's, it's imagining the scene. And so the proposal was that this spatial system is a way of pulling out the stored... Allocentric or abstract information that you have in your temporal lobes to create a coherent spatial scene from a single uh, location uh, with a single uh, direction, mm-hmm. you know, provided by the head direction cells and the place cells respectively. And then how you could project that information into an egocentric frame so that you can imagine it. Mm-hmm. So that that's a necessary thing that has to happen if we want to make contact with with human uh, imagery. And so that's why I put it in the model. Um, in principle, you could solve uh, vector navigation just using the, the grid and place cell uh, model, and, and maybe do that. Uh, mm-hmm. You need this extra stuff to be able to sort of visualize. Uh, but of course, that gives you know extra functionality. You might, in principle, you've got a lot of stored uh, abstract information. You could pull it together to give you uh, the viewpoint, if you like. Um, on all of that information that's consistent with being in a single location. And that's a very powerful way of of reducing the enormous amount of uh, stored information. You're just going to pull out all those bits that are consistent with me being here, possibly facing this direction. Now, what what is around me? And if you think conceptually, you've got a whole lot of stored information, a whole sort of life's worth of experience, if you like. Uh, if I ask you about Jennifer Aniston, you probably want to pull out just the information relative to to that location in, in the conceptual space of all mm-hmm. actors or people that you, you've ever seen. And so, uh, you know, it's more that um, these are ways in which memory could function. You have to consider the retrieval process. You could store an awful lot of information, but how do you retrieve it? Mm-hmm. And episodic memory seems to be a very specific way of retrieving information. You impose... Uh, a particular location and perhaps a particular direction to um, interrogate your stored data with.
1: Mm -hmm. But now the the model itself gives you like a lookup table, right? You can sort of project back from the egocentric views to Mm -hmm. the allocentric views. And uh, to what extent is the model then able to capture also the physiological and anatomical characteristics of this hippocampal system?
2: Well, uh, it's quite a high-level model because it's trying to deal with, uh, you know, Cognition, and we know so little that it would be it would be uh, inappropriate to try and build too much physiological and anatomical detail in from the start. But uh, you know this translation circuit, as shown by uh, Alex Pouget and various other people, corresponds to the observed uh, parietal gain field neurons that have been recorded, and uh, should function. As a, as a translation circuit, irrespective of what it is you're retrieving uh, from allocentric or egocentric coordinates and translating into the other. I'm not sure if that answers your mm-hmm. question, actually.
1: Well, so, because it's also a bit of a step towards the, the experiments you did with, with human subjects, where you then start to match the, the response of the model to fMRI experiments with human subjects that were in some sort of navigational test. So how well was the match then between the fMRI results and the predictions of your model?
2: Uh, well, in, in terms of the fMRI, it was more that um, we could have, to most of the um, areas of activity, that the areas in the brain that showed increased metabolic activity during this kind of task, we could ascribe some kind of putative function. It's very speculative, but the model says what that activity should be actually doing. You know, In the hippocampus, the cell should be doing this, and in retrosplenial cortex, it should be a translation circuit or whatever. And so it's not really that there was a um, particular... The model wasn't good enough to constrain um, what activity you should see. It's more that my choices of where these bits of the model should be in the brain... Were broadly borne out and they give us some kind of way of trying to understand what that activity might represent in terms mm-hmm. of mechanism so, so the a model
1: a b- as, as a heuristic to help you not to further think it helped to interpret those
2: results so it mm-hmm. wasn't that we predicted results and you know we we, we could measure the error between the mm-hmm. predicted results sure. and the actual mm-hmm. results
1: but now the um in terms of the performance so you had humans in a virtual reality environment where they um, let they navigate around, there was a target that they had to sort of memorize. So uh, we did do a behavioral experiment yeah.
2: where we did match the predictions of the of the model, mm-hmm. behavioral predictions of the model, and the behavior of the people. And uh, in in that case, yes, as, as of the models we tried, uh, the boundary vector cell, place cell model was the best match to the distribution of responses mm-hmm. across participants mm-hmm. of where they thought this thing was right. when you change the shape and size mm-hmm. of the virtual virtual room.
1: Right. But, no, so, but we discussed this also during your talk. This is, uh, I think, an interesting challenge now because you, you basically you took the, the response of all the subjects. The subjects had to, had to estimate where they were relative to this target. So this gives you distribution over all estimates over all subjects, right? And then you show that the model, your model could capture well the distribution over that whole group. But now, if we split it out to the individual level, and also you showed that data, you actually see that the individual distributions can have a rather different shape. Actually, it's clustered in, let's say, three different groups. Much less right? variance within subject than exactly. between subject. So then, in the end, what are we modeling? right? Are we, are we modeling statistically over populations, or do we have to take into account... Must we must we be able to also account for then these individual differences? Because you saw that the, the subjects that were accurate had a pretty nicely clustered set of responses. Well, and indeed, correct?
2: the ones who were inaccurate. Record. Well, to, exactly. To, to be fair, actually, uh, in that experiment, because you've changed the environment, there's no right or wrong. In fact, you know, you can say they, well, had, a like, they, had, they a had a task. They had a task to right? um, put their marker where they thought the flag was. That's it. But yep. the encoding environment. Had changed, sure. and so it's a bit of an arbitrary question. And they did their best, and some people they made different guesses. But to answer your question about what the model was showing, mm-hmm. I think the model was showing that uh, as a population, people had a vague idea where things were that related mm-hmm. to the the, the the walls of the environment, and the model captured some aspect of that, but uh, it didn't capture the individual differences by any means at all. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was interesting that as a group, they they kept within this sort of Mm-hmm. very broad um, distribution that the the model could show. I mean, we could have cranked up the model and said, just sliced off the very top uh, mm-hmm. likelihood mm-hmm. match for location. And that would have been, you know, a very mm-hmm. narrow uh, distribution. And some subjects put their responses there and others put them Miles away, and mm-hmm. some subjects were also confused and right. did uninterpretable but now, things. But,
1: but lo- looking at the at the distribution across the subjects, we see three groups. Right, there's one group that say let's call them accurate, and they're they're a bit at the northeast corner of the environment, close to the wall. the uh, The second cluster is sort of southeast, so close to the wall, but they're like re- reversed, right? They've mirrored. If you want that space, and the third group is completely off in the opposite corner. So is there is there a set of parameters in your model that would be able to then tune the model to capture each of those clusters of responses
2: accurately? Well, um, I think that there was one There was one participant that was off in the corner. I think we have to um, just ignore... Who knows what they were thinking about? Okay. <laughs> then there's two other groups of responses, and indeed they're not... Uh, one is within, to so see the blue one there. Mm-hmm. It's actually some... They responded in both uh, groups. Um, but it seems like of these subjects, more of them because the original location was nearer to the north wall than the south wall. More of them were, if you like, trying to replicate that distance Mm -hmm. to the south wall. Although they don't replicate that actual distance, it's stretched down somewhat. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then fewer of them are perhaps, if you like, Mm -hmm. paying more attention during encoding to the distance Mm -hmm. to the uh, south wall, and they're replicating that to Mm -hmm. a greater extent. And so uh, who knows, as I showed their viewing direction, it's not that the ones paying attention to the north wall, were all looking at the north mm-hmm. wall. Some of them were, but there's a few that were looking at the north wall that matched the distance from the south sure. wall. Sure, but
1: it's but interesting because then the model replicated something that was not present in any of your subjects.
2: Well, we did discuss this uh, during the talk. I think yeah. some of these subjects who are what okay, you call quite blue, accurate... The blue one, um, yeah, okay. yeah, well, and maybe this, this sort of reddish one that's in there as well. A few mm-hmm. of them may have... Yeah, actually fitted it. But yes, the, the, the variance across subjects is not captured in the model. And it seems like you'd have to have different weights for the north boundary vector cell and the mm-hmm. and the south boundary vector cell and tweak that between subjects right. to get this sort of response mm-hmm. in a way which wouldn't be very satisfactory because no, it, but, exactly. but, but you could do many, many trials mm-hmm. uh, and then, you know, see if you're still predicting their responses if you know, if if you could find some way of, mm-hmm. of knowing which wall they're going to mm-hmm. be paying a bigger right. weight to. We didn't try and do mm-hmm. that. But you might be able to, I don't but know. now, but but
1: but, uh, do you see this as a critical challenge to the model, or you think that this is a detail that you can handle? Um,
2: well, the so that model uh, only requires the boundary vector cells and the place cells, mm-hmm. and so now we have this more elaborated model which includes the the visual, Im- visual imagery and would allow us to also incorporate what some of them seem to be trying to do by lining up their viewpoint at encoding and retrieval, which would be to match the current visual scene with the imagined visual scene from encoding we could try to add that that would be you know of these three are different mm-hmm. frameworks that i mentioned at the beginning i think the uh, spatial updating or path integration probably can't be used here because there's a random teleportation to a different spot uh, before they make their response but the other two the visual matching uh, and the environmental uh, mm-hmm. location Surely are relevant. So we could try adding the visual matching to Mm -hmm. this and see if that improves. And maybe if something about the orientation at encoding gives some of this inter-subject variation, because the encoding positions are all different, Mm -hmm. uh, that might be a way to go. We haven't tried to do that so far.
1: But that would mean that, that models on navigation would have to start to include a notion of individual style.
2: Uh, only if you want... I mean, yes, if you're interested in those inter-individual differences, or you might say, like we did in this original experiment, who cares, let's yeah. see if we can get any kind of match to anything, averaged over whatever. Sure,
1: but now you have matched to an average person that doesn't exist. Yeah. but
2: It's a typical problem for of modeling, uh, right? So well, <laughs> and Other good points could be made, like, all, all models are wrong. Yeah, uh, sure. <laughs> but actually, a model is only replaced by a better model also. Mm-hmm. Um, that, yeah. You know, so.
1: Yeah no no that I'm absolutely right. So look um let's let's get to the you then started to map these these ideas um or also st- reasoning from these models you looked at the response in the human brain using fMRI but now the second problem that that you could face there is of course also the matching in time right because Initially, we talked about grid cells, place cells, so on. And we talked about electrophysiological data. This is all happening in milliseconds. And now we are validating the model against fMRI experiments where we actually look at a very different spatial temporal uh, window of response that's measured in seconds, right? So, so how, do you, how do you overcome that challenge? That in some sense, the dynamics of the model is completely outside of the window of the measurement technique that you use to validate the model.
2: Well, um, we made predictions that were appropriate for that kind of testing. We also use M. e. g. and intracranial recording, which which has higher temporal resolution, mm-hmm. of course. But uh, for predictions for fmRI you you need to you know the the most common kind of prediction is that on average, during this task, this particular part of the brain is going to be a bit more active because there's neurons there that are doing something that are required for the task, and that's the kind of prediction that we made. So you may be referring to the sort of grid cell-like experiment where we tried to make a prediction for, for what would be the time-averaged bold signal as a function of running direction over the whole trial um, by noticing that the, the, the grid cell firing patterns tend to be aligned uh, across the whole population of grid cells. We tried to make a prediction for a difference according to, to alignment with the grid axes or, or mm-hmm. misalignment with the grid axes in terms of your running direction uh, which we could look for on on this you know time average data mm-hmm. over the whole trial right
1: but th- 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 that was a brilliant idea uh, how, how did you how did you stumble into that or was it, that was really like an, a sudden insight like okay the, the, f- the orientation of the grids has a certain discretization and given the discretization we must see alignment or misalignment and we can exploit that in our bold signal was it really like
0: well mis-
2: i i should say um so the other two authors who were both postdocs in my group at the time uh, christian Dola and caswell barry had been wanting so caswell barry was recording grid cells in in, in rodents uh, and christian Dola was doing fmri and he really wanted that the two of them really wanted to be able to see something in fMRI that might somehow relate to grid cells. Mm-hmm. And so we did We did discuss it for, for you know, some years uh, before, um, and, and Caswell noticed that these grid cells were aligned, the grid patterns were aligned. And so that we, we tried to look and eventually um, I had heard of quadrature filters, which are a good way of looking for a particular phase orientations. And so, you know, we put this, this method together and eventually applied it to data that we'd re- mm-hmm. re- actually recorded over the, Previous four or five years uh, for other reasons um, prior to coming up with this particular idea for looking for a grid like signal. Mm-hmm.
1: Right. Uh, it's, a, it's an amazing result. But now, is the 60 degrees, is that, let's say, the optimal, um, if you want? misalignment between grid cells? Is that why you would find the strongest competition between their responses? Or do you see the 60 degrees as some sort of canonical feature of their alignment in the human entorhinal cortex?
2: No, it's it's just that the actual firing pattern itself is um, a a regular triangular grid. And so it has orientational symmetry of 60 degrees. And Mm -hmm. so that's why every 60 degrees... Of rotation you should see a similar mm-hmm. if you're looking ahead you're, you're running in a straight line ahead then you should see a similar pattern mm-hmm. of uh, firing fields of all the different grid cells in front of you because it looks the same every time mm-hmm. you go through 60 degrees that's because it's a, a uh, regular triangular grid
1: but that would mean any multiple of 60 should also work yes mm-hmm.
2: yes it does I mean uh, the control uh, experiments in that paper was looking at things that were not multiples of 60 mm-hmm. uh, 30 also should not work because that, in fact, should be the optimal disambiguator. Right. And, and that's what we compared, sort of, 30 versus mm-hmm. 60. But we also looked for, um, you know, uh, instead of sixfold fold um, rotational symmetry, seven-fold, five-fold, four-fold, mm-hmm. eight-fold, and we did not see that. So that was you mm-hmm. know, the, the control for our method.
1: Right. So wh- why do you think the triangular...
2: Well, actually, that's an interesting point. So, if we were, if you were an engineer, uh, which you probably probably are, I don't know, <laughs> you, I'm a psychologist. You're a psychologist, mm-hmm. okay? Well, if you were an engineer, uh, then you might design uh, some kind of uh, navigation system to, or, or something to provide a metric on an x and y right angular axes. Um, so, why do we have sort of uh, axes that uh, it's more like uh, triangular axes with a 60 degrees instead of 90 degrees? And um, one, I think. Um, one reason you can see from, um, from dead reckoning, so in sailors that were navigating, they would um, try to have uh, multiple lines that they were integrating across. And uh, the reason why it's three is better than two, because if I'm estimating my displacement in X and in Y, it gives me a location. But if I'm doing it on three axes, then any pair of them will give me a location. And I can check for my error by comparing it with any other pair. And so by having more than two axes, it's redundant. But the redundancy is useful because it tells you when you're accumulating error.
1: Mm-hmm. Right. Well, n- an alternative is that a triangle is the optimal way to cover a sphere, which would be interesting for grid cells because that means it's sort of a never-ending right, attractor system.
2: Um, well, you you could... So it's close-packed, and so... Mm-hmm. You might think that you ha- you have um, you know two D space represented on a torus. In fact, yeah. and you have close packed representation mm-hmm. on that surface. And and indeed, you know, hexagonal close packing is mm-hmm. is is likely um, is another good good reason for why that you might end up with grid cells. The, That's right. the, there are models of how grid cells could be formed, say from from place cells uh, mm-hmm. in terms of compression or whatever, and you would end up with. With hexagonal close mm-hmm. packing, that's uh, right. Yeah. Yep. Although, in some cases, if you do the PCA, mm-hmm. uh, certainly in, in rectangular environments, you mm-hmm. end up with uh, ninety-degree grids, uh, also. Uh, so,
1: now, So, in our in our models, it's a twisted torus essentially mm-hmm. with triangular packing because that's optimal. Yes. Okay. Um, but so, so now the other thing that, that, that you showed that towards the end of your talk was uh, actually an interesting effect that you, if you have uh, connected rooms. But not continuous rooms, and you measure the grid, rel- the grid cell response along these rooms. That they actually are sort of ad- adjusting themselves with time, right? So, so how how large can these adjustments be, right? So, what, what kind of shifts can you observe? Because it seems to say that it seems to look like if these are connected rooms, they converge onto still a consistent mapping, right? A consistent coverage of then these two rooms as if it is one.
2: Uh, so, so what was the question? <laughs> well, what what kind of modulation can well, you I expect c- to see there? Well, so um, uh, Francis Carpenter, who, who did this experiment with, with Caswell Barry, you know, he he recorded for up to twenty one days of experience of, of the rats walking between these two rooms along the corridor, and after that long length of time, you know, the, the grid like patterns were becoming. In the two adjacent boxes coming more like a global grid that covered both of them but still hadn't got the whole way there uh and so i guess what you could expect with with experience you know would be adjustments that that can cover up to half a, a grid wavelength so that the two grids can come into alignment mm-hmm. whatever their starting phases are it's interesting in that experiment we had um Identi- perceptually identical as far as we can make it, um, boxes, so that the orientations of the grids would be aligned. I don't know if it might be much harder for the system with misaligned grids in two, mm-hmm. two rooms to bring them into alignment. Although experiments by Jeff Taube's group have shown the equivalent thing in head direction cells, that if you have two different boxes which, uh, in which head direction cells have different directional tuning and you join them with a, a corridor that the rat can walk through, then eventually they they line up and become mm-hmm. consistent. And right. I would see these all as part of the same process of trying to build some kind of representation of space which is consistent to path integration between mm-hmm. the different uh, bits of right. space.
1: And do you see that as an adjustment driven by, let's say, CA1? Or is it extra hippocampal?
2: No, well, I, would, I would see uh, in that case, because it's the path integration by walking backwards and forwards which... Um, is presumably driving the reorganization because that's what tells you the relative locations uh, in the two boxes. So there's probably the grid cells trying to, if you like, uh, align according to their part their movement-related inputs that drives the remapping, the slow remapping that you see in CA1 in mm-hmm. this same of situation uh, where place cells are originally firing identically in the two boxes begin to slowly disambiguate the two boxes.
1: Mm-hmm. But some, But there's still some monitoring process that can then check whether the grid cell response becomes more or less regular at some periodicity, right? Otherwise, you won't get the correct alignment because in terms of face and spacing and orientation, it has to be aligned.
2: Yes, I'm not sure there's anything checking. It's Mm -hmm. it's more like uh, simultaneous localization and mapping. Mm -hmm. So in robots, you know, you come into a new environment, you try and you've got uh, movement detectors, you've got sensory inputs, you try and build a map that's consistent with everything. And I think in this situation, perceptually identical, the perceptual feed forward, uh, you know, boundary vector cells and so on to place cells was dominating and making uh, identical replications of patterns in both boxes. But eventually it manages to do something like SLAM Mm -hmm. and make a representation which is consistent with the path integration. Mm -hmm. Okay. But I would see it as, you know, you you can't put one before the other. It's trying to Mm -hmm. come to a compromise of both and there's nothing checking.
1: Okay. But the plasticity sits in the entorhinal cortex, driving this, or, the, or in the or in the CA one or CA three.
2: Well, there must be plasticity. Uh, I was going. Yes, I'm not sure actually. <laughs> I was. What I was going to say mm-hmm. was there must be plasticity between the place cells and the grid cells because the alignment must be. But I'm not sure now actually. It, it may be that um, you know the place cells are trying to anchor the grids to mm-hmm. environment and the grid cells are providing path integration Mm -hmm. input to the place cells, it may be that that doesn't require plasticity, and that the plasticity happens as the grids, if you like, pay more attention to their movement-related inputs Mm -hmm. than their sensory-driven inputs from place cells and become more path integration-driven. And that, as a consequence, mm-hmm. changes the play cells to become more consistent with that pattern. Exactly. And that actually didn't require mm-hmm. plasticity mm-hmm. between the play cells and the right. grid cells. Yeah. Mm-hmm. On, on, and on top of that... But on top of that, <laughs> then you must have... So you must have plasticity with the two kinds of inputs. So I've posited the movement-related input mm-hmm. that we think is driving the grid cells, and the environmental sensory input, which mm-hmm. I think is driving the, the play cells. Uh, there must be plasticity in both of those inputs Mm -hmm. uh, because in the end a place cell in the in one of the environments will be firing differently relative to its Mm -hmm. sensory inputs right and um, initially the grid cells will be firing uh, inconsistently with path integration Mm -hmm. because they're driven by the sensory input so the plasticity in that model would be um, not between the place cells and grid cells but between the place cells Mm -hmm. and the sensory input and the grid cells and the path integration right
1: but also because this emerges relatively slowly right it takes a long time to get this alignment
2: so how many hours does the, does the animal spend between these two? Well, that two would boxes? be, um, you know, a couple of hours a day for, for many, many days. Exactly. And so one valid question is if you made the task depend on uh, knowing where you were in mm-hmm. each box separately, yeah, maybe it would happen faster. Who knows? Mm-hmm. That might be worth trying because it's a horribly long experiment to run That's right. in its current mm-hmm. form. Exactly. But, but we don't know. Okay, great.
1: But So we, we talked earlier about the about the concept cells, and in some sense... It's now, the, the hippocampus is almost making Jennifer Aniston more famous than she was ever before. But we also have a new concept cell, which, which is now representing the concept cell of Jennifer Aniston. So if we start to think about generalizing away from spatial cognition and just behavior in space, and we start to think about other domains in which you can use these capabilities of the hippocampus we still would need some sort of path integrator that drives that system. So imagine we're going to apply this now to, let's say, a complex cognitive task, and we're going to use uh, the computational capabilities of the hippocampus. What would then stand in for, for its path integrator if I'm not moving in physical space anymore?
2: Well, I think as we um, discussed with this stretchy bird experiment and the grid cells, uh, if you have a nice grid cell representation, it's very powerful and can represent the vector 2D vector relationships between uh, any two points in a very large space. This could be very useful uh, for mapping all sorts of things concepts for example, where the vectorial relationship would be on vectors of neck length or leg length, mm. or who knows how much I like them versus you know how much um, they wear expensive clothes or anything. Uh, but it would be a powerful system for representing whatever that conceptual space mm-hmm. is. And there, um, although path integration was probably useful for wiring up these grid cells in the spatial situation, if you have that representation somehow uh, in this non-spatial situation, and maybe it's developed as a PCA of these non-spatial firing patterns, or maybe it's somehow um, the conceptual problem is mapped onto space implicitly, Either way, you then got a very powerful system for um, understanding relationships between different concepts.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay. So Neil, um, to finish up, okay, you you come from physics, went went to theory, and then to experiments, now you combine this in animals and humans, and you also have been part of some really great discoveries in, in, in this field, um, and which also was recognized recently by being elected to the uh, as a fellow of the Royal Society, which is which is a big compliment to to, to your work, so congratulations. Um, but the question now is: so, so, given that experience, what would you what would you see as uh, Neil's law in the study of the brain?
2: <laughs> I don't think there's any uh, such thing as Neil's law. I I do think that if you're trying to um, if you're trying to model something complicated like cognition then um, at the level of neurons you need to start with the simplest possible model because we have so little idea about how neurons do represent things like cognition obviously in the spatial domain we have some great clues from from all of this work we've heard about Uh, and so I tried to always use the simplest model and also, it might not be a mathematically tractable model, although it would be great if, if it was, but it doesn't have to be. It's not clear that the brain mm-hmm. is going to be mathematically tractable. And it needs to make experimental predictions. And indeed, experiments have to um, have something to say to, to theory. Other, you mm-hmm. know, they each only exists with the other in some useful sense. If you do an experiment, it doesn't impact any theories. Mm-hmm. What was the point? If you have a theory, it doesn't in, it, impact any experiments. You know, maybe mm-hmm. it'll be useful one day, but it's not that mm-hmm. useful right now.
1: But wait, the law of defining laws is that they must fit on the T-shirt. So what's <laughs> the law?
2: Uh... Like keep it simple? Uh, Well, I think I think there's a um, somebody famous said something like, you know, if I could uh, capture my contribution, maybe it was Feynman. In mm-hmm. in one sentence, it wouldn't be much of a contribution. Mm-hmm. Okay. I, <laughs> I, I don't think that's true. I think there are some great no, discoveries which were can saying, be captured on a T-shirt, but right. I'm not sure. I've Wait, got, but I thought I, you were saying. I, 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 I thought you, got, you were saying keep it, keep simple. it simple. Yeah, okay. Right. I, 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 that's what I. Got that would be it, fine. Keep right? it simple and okay. keep it grounded in in uh, experiment. Okay, good, great. It's not so, a very exciting T-shirt. <laughs>
1: Well, it depends what else you put on it. but um, Or who's wearing it, uh, maybe Jennifer Aniston. But look, um, five years from now, I'm gonna smuggle myself into the UK um, because by then after Brexit and the whole disaster it goes along, I will not be allowed to enter anymore in any legal way. And I'm gonna come to your lab because by then you'll still be there. Um, and I'm gonna check whether a specific prediction you made today was actually ver- verified or falsified. So what's the one prediction you really would like to see tested in that five year frame?
2: Well, um, there's there's a few. I mean, I didn't really talk about it because there wasn't time and it seemed a bit complicated, but I really would like to know if uh, uh, temporal coding and theta phase procession has something to do with path integration and it may take nearer to 10 years but i i hope at one point we'll be able to image grid cells and their dendritic inputs to work out what it is that's making them fire in a grid-like pattern Mm -hmm. and there's a clear prediction that you should see oscillations of different frequencies in these different dendrites and i would i would like to see that At the more uh, cognitive level, there's some applications to uh, what happens in in post-traumatic stress disorder in terms of different forms of memory supporting imagery or impacting them on them in different ways. And it would be nice to see if some of those predictions have come out uh, that this model of imagery had some uh, clinical relevance.
1: Mm -hmm. All right, great. Neil Burgess, thank you very much for this conversation.
2: Thank you.
0: The CSN podcast was produced by the Convergent Science Network of Biometics and Biohybrid Systems, a project funded by the European Seventh Research Framework Programme. For more interviews, recorded lectures, or upcoming conferences in the field of biometics and biohybrid systems, go to csnnetwork.eu. And thank you for listening.